Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. If you have a Bible with you or you have a Bible app on your mobile phone, uh, please turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to be in, in chapter number 10 this morning, and I just want to welcome you back to uh, our series here, uh, Christianity 101, and we've subtitled this series, What We Believe and Why, and today uh, we're going to be in part two of that series. And before we get started... Um, let me just take a moment and remind you that the reason why we're doing this particular series in, in the first place is, uh, as I said last week, all of the messages in all the sermon series that we do here at First Baptist Church are designed to help you grow with your walk with God. But um, a large portion of the series that we do here at First Baptist is aimed at really being very practical. And, and what I mean by that is we look at the text that's in the Bible and then we look for ways to take what we read and actually then apply it to our lives. For instance, uh, the last series we did titled Go was all about and how we take part in the Great Commission. And everything that we talked about was aimed at helping you to take action, to move towards doing what Jesus said to do, which is go and make disciples. And, uh, and so it was a very practical series. And we do lots of practical series. Um, in fact, we, 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 we focused on things like discipleship and evangelism and relationships and parenting and, and grace. Uh, but this series that we're in right now is, is different. It actually isn't quite so practical. It's actually very theological, which means, you know, we're going to dive deeper into the theology of what we read. And, and so it's not so much about what we do, rather, you know, uh, topics like this is about, you know, what we know about God. Topics like this are a little less oriented towards action and a little bit more cerebral. And because of that, you know, topics like this can be a bit harder to follow. And so that's why last week I issued this warning right here, okay? Okay, I made a point to note that in this series, there is a chance that you're going to be exposed to some geeky theological ideas and probably hear some strange theological terms. We're going to probably use words like doctrine and justification and incarnation and maybe even we'll throw out hypostatic union if, uh, if the, the occasion warrants. But, uh, and I know theology can be a bit dry, you know. I mean, I know sometimes it can be a bit boring because I know for a fact, because I have to read books like this. It's a thousand pages, okay, on theology, all right? So I, I understand, and, and as I said last week, you know, I'll do everything my, my, my power to make this an interesting topic, and, uh, and despite my best efforts, if that doesn't happen, I'm not going to blame you if you fall asleep during the discussion, but I promise I will take your picture and post it on Facebook, okay? So, no, I'm just kidding. I won't do that. So, scaring people to death right now, so... Um, but the truth is, uh, we're in a series that's that's really important because uh, um, you know practical series you know are, are based on what what we're supposed to do from scripture, uh, and that's really important. But theological series are about what we believe and 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 what we believe based on scripture. And as we talked about last week, there's an important truth that we must absolutely keep in the forefront of our minds. Okay, and the truth is that we must keep our our, our eyes fixed on. It. And the truth is that our, it's the truth that our culture and really the world around us is trying to distract us from. And the truth truth is simply this. It is not what we do that saves us. It's what we believe. Okay? And it's not what we do that saves us. It's, it's what we believe that saves us. And this is an important distinction because in the, in, in the world around us, it's trying to, in the name of tolerance, to get Christians to stop thinking and focusing on what we believe and shift our focus on how we behave. In fact, you know, if you're into social media at all, you've probably seen like this little pithy statement right here. Okay? And it says that, you know, it's not what you believe. It's how you behave. And it, and it sounds good, right? It sounds good. I mean... 
you know, uh, you know, it's not what you believe, it's how you behave. That's the mantra of our culture and the world around us. And, and, it, and it sounds really good, but it, it, because people think it's not about doctrine, it's, it's about how we treat people. And, and for most of us, that, that really kind of rings a bell with us, right? I mean, Jesus wants us to treat people well. He wants us to love other people, even, you know, our enemies. And so it doesn't matter really what we believe. What matters is how we behave. Doctrine divides, but Jesus' love unites, you know, is what we hear. And, and so it's not what you believe, it's how you behave. And, and, and if, if you like, you know, this saying, then you can get that slogan, you know, on t-shirts and coffee mugs and, you know, and even businesses are getting in on the act here. There's a sign outside of a restaurant that uh, reads this. It says, your beliefs do not make you a better person. Your behavior does. And again, there's something in us that wants to say, yes, that's right. That's right. And there's something in our culture that's pressuring us to fall in line with this kind of thinking. Because it's, it's, it's the uh, that's the only that we the thinking that they that we're being pressured into is that it's only how we behave and not what we believe. The focus on our culture is shifting, you know, uh, towards our actions in order to reduce the importance of what we believe. But we need to be really, really clear here. Okay, our greatest problem isn't how we treat each other. Okay, now follow me here because how we treat each other, especially us Christians, okay, at times it's a big problem for us. Okay, it is a big problem for us, but it's not our greatest problem. Okay, and our greatest problem isn't the fact that we're not good people. Again, that is a problem, all right, but it's not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is is the fact that we live that we're broken sinners living in a broken world, and there's nothing we can do on our own to change that. That's our greatest problem. You see, we can't treat each other good enough to change that. We can't love each other enough to change that. We can't be tolerant enough and compassionate enough and understanding enough to change that. All of our good intentions, you know, and our best efforts and caring and sensitivities towards other people will not change that. Because in the end, we are still broken sinners in a broken world. And despite our best efforts, the ugliness of our own sin and the ugliness of who we really are on the inside stains everything that we do. And worse than that, how we treat each other here and now, as important as that may be, is really the secondary problem. You see, the real problem isn't how we treat each other or other people. The real problem is that all of mankind, all of mankind is destined to stand before God and to be judged. And because of our sin, we are all condemned, and rightfully so, and we will rightfully spend eternity in hell apart from the life-giving presence of God. That is our greatest problem. And uh, our greatest problem isn't the here and now. Our greatest problem is an issue of eternity. So how we treat each other, you know, is, you know, is a temporal issue. It's temporary, okay? As important as it is, it's still only temporary. But our condemnation because of our sin, that's a permanent and eternal issue, which means the consequences of that last forever and ever and ever. Now... Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. How we behave and treat each other, okay, is absolutely important. We need to love all of the people, including our enemies, with a reckless abandon because Jesus tells us to do that. And because it is in the best way for us to share the light of God with the world, and it's just simply the right thing to do. So how we treat people and how we behave is important, but it is secondary to what we believe as we discussed. It is not what we do that saves us from the judgment of God. It's what we believe. In fact, when the, the jailer asked Paul and Silas, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul did not say, go out and love everyone the way Jesus loved them. 
go out and be nice to everyone and treat them well because it's not what you believe, you know, it's how you behave. That's not what he said. He said, believe, not do. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Salvation, the answer to our greatest problem, comes from what we believe and not what we do. Salvation is about our beliefs and not our behavior. So then when we believe, then, then what we believe is actually really incredibly important. Our doctrine or the, or the sum total of our beliefs is important. And so that's what this series is about. It's about what Christians must believe to be saved. It's about the essential beliefs or doctrines of our faith. Now, um, we're not going to talk about everything that Christians believe in this series, okay? The truth is there are a lot of things that Christians believe, and there's way too much to cover. Uh, and there's a lot of things that Christians believe that every Christian agrees on, okay? There are things like mode of baptism or, or style of worship music or, or how and when Jesus will come back. There are lots of things that Christians believe and believe very strongly that have nothing to do with the issue of salvation. So the focus of this series is simply on the things that are essential to the faith that we have in God. What must we believe to be saved is the question that we're asking. What must we not deny in order to be saved. And so the first thing that we talked about last week um, to be saved is we, we believe, you know, it, it's about what we believe and not what we do, okay? Or what is known as the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul says very clearly, for by grace you have been saved through faith, okay? Which is what we believe, this is not your own doing. It's a gift for God, a gift of God, not the result of works or by what you do so that no one may boast. So last week we laid the foundation and made it really clear that we are saved by what we believe rather than what we do. Now this week I want to start by talking about the object of what we believe. What is it that we actually believe in? What is it we put our faith in? What is it that we are actually trusting in? The actual object of our faith. What is it that saves us? I mean, we can believe lots of different things. And lots of different people believe lots of different things. Muslims believe that the writings, they believe in the writings of Muhammad. Okay? Their object of their faith is the Quran. Okay? The object of a Buddhist faith is the Buddha or the Dhamma or the Sangha. Uh, and, and our Mormon friends, the object of their faith is Joseph Smith and his writings. Uh, that's what they believe in. And secular humanists, they put their faith in humanism. Okay? The object of their faith is in humanity. Okay? You see, whatever someone has their faith in, there's an object to that faith. That faith must be pushed, placed into something. That faith must be entrusted into someone or something. <clears throat> we must believe in something. There must be an object to what we exercise our belief in. Okay? If there was no chair here, I can't exercise faith in the chair because if I did, I would just go all the way to the floor. Okay? But if there's a chair here, I exercise my faith in it by placing my weight on it. There has to be an object to my faith. You see, when someone has faith in an object, you're placing your trust in that. So what is the object of the Christian faith? What is it that Christians believe in? Well, the object of our faith is really quite simple. It is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the total object of our faith. Jesus is the central point of everything that we believe. He's the beginning and the end of all of our doctrine. He's the central figure of the Bible. We are called Christians because of Christ. And everything we believe and everything that we teach and everything that we're concerned about is centered on him in his life and his work. Every truth we talk about 
has its foundations in him. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is the Redeemer and the Messiah. Jesus is the absolute central object of our faith. And it's in him we trust. In him alone we place our hope. In him alone is the object of our faith. And so because of that... Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus. And we're going to talk about you know, what we must believe about Jesus, the object of our faith to be saved. And so what we're going to do in the next several weeks, we're going to be going through what is known in theology as Christology. I know I just dropped a new theological word on you here. But it's called Christology. And Christology is defined as a branch of Christian theology relating to the person, the nature, and the role of Jesus. It's all about who Jesus is, all about what Jesus has done, and what makes him the Savior. Christology, in a nutshell, is what we believe about Christ in order to be saved. And that's what we're going to talk about the next few weeks. We're going to spend some time focusing on Jesus and his life and and the nature of his, his work. And so today, where I want to start is, I want to begin with the historical Jesus. The real historical Jesus. Now, strange as it may sound to you, this is an important place to actually begin because um, the fact of the matter is there's a large portion of the world and a substantial number of Christians as you know, as strange as this may be, who want to take history and kind of set history over here and they want to take faith and faith things and, and set it over here and they don't want to mix the two together. Okay, They want to treat history and, and faith as two separate things. Okay, they, they don't want them to be commingled because it creates problems and big questions. But the problem is, okay, is it can't be done. It cannot be done because Jesus is in fact a real man in history. And all the historical record points to that. He was born into this world. He lived a life. He died. He rose uh, again from the grave. Not simply you know, as a story, but actual in history. His life, death, and resurrection are historical events that happened in time and space. There's a historical record that, be, that, that, that is beyond uh, just the historical record that's found in the Bible. There are extra biblical stories sources for all these things. And so your faith, unlike the faith of others, is rooted in actual historical events that actually happened. It's rooted not it's rooted in actual historical figure. It's not a myth or a legend or a folktale. It's history. And it really happened with with a real historical record. And the life and the work of Jesus is not simply a faith thing, okay? It's a historical thing. And this is really critically important for us to understand. And so because of that, You know, what you believe about the historical Jesus is really the foundation of your faith. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the historical Jesus and what you need to know about him and why you need to know those things. In fact, there are four things that we're going to talk about today um, that you need to believe about the historical Jesus. Four essential things that we need to know and know firmly and firmly believe. Okay, And the first thing is the fact that Jesus came to this earth to be a man, not like any other man. He was born of a virgin. Virgin, okay, he did not have a human father, and this is something that gets brought up at least once a year. Okay, when it comes to the Christmas story, right? Everybody, you know, when they talk about the Christmas story, we start with, you know, the angel came to Mary and he tells her, "You're going to bear a son. You're going to be the mother of the Son of God." And she asks the question, "Okay, how is that possible? Because I'm still a virgin." And he tells her, 
and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. Therefore, a child will be born and called Holy, the Son of God. Okay? So, so right, um, we, we, we talk about it at Christmas, and this is a wonderful part of the Christmas story. For, but for many Christians, this historical fact about Jesus' life kind of makes them uncomfortable. Okay? And, 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 and that's why many Christians are all too happy to separate history and, and, and faith because the virgin birth of Jesus is a big deal. Okay? It's, it's a big deal. And for some, it's a stumbling block because, not, because everyone knows for a woman to become pregnant, you need a mother and a father you know, to uh, engage in a relationship, okay? especially before you know, modern time and artificial insemination, okay? which still brings the other biological material to make that happen. All right? But the thing is, is people understand and, and still understand that that, that didn't happen by itself. Okay? And so this idea of a first century Jew Jewish virgin giving birth to a child is really kind of incredible. Um, and it, it's never happened before. And it's never happened since that time. And so it's kind of hard for many people to believe. And so many people just kind of mock this part of the story or relegate it to like folklore that surrounds the story of Jesus. And in fact, there are some Christians who will say, you know, well, some of the story of Jesus is kind of mythological because he's kind of larger than life. So it kind of warrants that. But the doctrine of the virgin birth is really absolutely critical. In fact, it's essential. Now, you, you may ask, well, why? What's the significance of the virgin birth? Well, to begin with, in the words of uh, uh, David Mathis, it, he, he says it, it highlights the supernatural. On uh, one end of Jesus' life uh, lies the supernatural conception and birth, and on the other end lies the supernatural resurrection and ascension to God's right hand. Jesus' authenticity is attested by the supernatural working of his Father. Secondly... He says the virgin birth shows that humanity needs redeeming that, that it can't bring about itself. Okay? The fact that the human race couldn't produce its own redeemer implies that its sin and guilt are profound and that a savior must come from the outside. Okay? As we talked about, the stain of our sin covers everything. And then thirdly, he continues, uh, in the virgin birth, he said, God's initiative is on display. The angel didn't ask Mary for her willingness. He announced, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He didn't ask Mary for permission. He acted gently and decisively to save his people from their sins. And then fourth, the virgin birth hints at a fully human, fully divine natures united in Jesus' one person person. The word became flesh. That is the miracle and the mystery of the virgin birth. God chose to mark the coming of his eternal son by his anointed one with this, you know, extraordinary birth. Now, why do we need to believe the virgin birth is real? Well, another pastor puts it this way. He says, if the virgin birth of Jesus is untrue, then the story of Jesus changes greatly. We would have a sexually promiscuous uh, young woman lying about God's miraculous hand in the birth of her son, raising that son to declare that he is God, then joining his religion. But if Mary is nothing more than a sinful con artist, then neither she nor her son can be trusted because both clear teachings of Scripture about the beginning of Jesus' earthly life and character of 
his mother are at stake. We must, he says, contend for the virgin birth of Christ. If Jesus was not born a virgin, then his story begins to fall apart really before it gets started. And our, our reasons for faith begin to collapse right along with it. And, and with that, what is more, without the virgin birth, you lose the next important fact that you must believe about Jesus' life and the fact that Jesus lived a sinless life. Okay? That, too, is an important because think about this. We are not capable of saving ourselves. We talk about this a lot. We are not capable of making ourselves right before God. Why? Well, we talk about this over and over again. Our sin, the stain of our sin, ruins everything. The prophet Isaiah tells us that we have all become like one who is unclean. We have become, you know, because of our sin, unfit to stand before God. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Or in other words, the best that we can offer God from our lives, the best of our deeds, the best of our intentions, the best of our efforts, okay, none of that is nothing, all of that is nothing but trash in the sight of God. And it's not that our good deeds aren't good. So let's not misunderstand that. It's not that the good things that we do aren't good. It's just that the stain of our sin is just that bad. It covers and ruins everything, even our best of efforts. And so we can't save ourselves. And we can't save each other. I can't be the sacrifice for you. I can't save you. Okay? And so if Jesus comes to earth, you know, and, and he has sin in his life, then guess what? He's just like us, which means he couldn't save us because the stain of his sin would ruin his work too, like it ruins ours. And David Mathis points out, if he were born of two human parents, it's very difficult to conceive that he could have been exempted from the guilt of Adam's sin and become a new head of the human race. And it would, would seem only an arbitrary act of God that Jesus could be born without a sinful nature. Yet Jesus' sinlessness as the new head of the human race and as the atoning lamb of God is absolutely vital to our salvation. You see, Jesus had to live a sinless life in order to save us because a sinful man cannot save another sinful man. A sinful man cannot give another man righteousness that leads to salvation because Jesus, but Jesus who lived this perfect life, in a sinless life, he can do that. In fact, Paul tells us, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, you should be really familiar with that verse because we sing that line all the time. We sing that line all the time. In fact, it's sung like, you know, we sing it like, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried his cross. Love so amazing. Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. It's one of our favorite songs here at First Baptist Church. We sing it almost every month, okay? And the reason why we love it so much is it's simple. It communicates to us the truth that, that, that Jesus, God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, a sinless life. And then in his sinlessness, he willingly bore the penalty of our sin, making a way for us to be saved. The sinless, perfect life of Jesus is critical, critical to our faith. Without his sinless life, okay, we're still in our sins, and the next historical fact about Jesus would be completely arbitrary and irrelevant. The fact that Jesus died a horrific death on the cross as payment for our sins is grounded in the virgin birth and his sinless life. Okay, You see, 
as we, we talk about all the time, the wages of sin is death. There is a penalty for our sin. There's a cost for the sin that we have in our lives. And Jesus willingly sacrificed himself and his sinless life on the cross in order to pay the penalty of that sin. And so his sinless life okay, is, is critical to our faith. And, and, it's, and so also is the fact that, the, that he historically died on the cross. This is important to our faith that Jesus actually died as he did because it is by his blood it is by His blood that we are washed and cleansed from our sin. It is, in fact, we're going to we're going to uh, to uh, to uh, observe the Lord's table today, and and when we take the cup, it's a symbol of His blood that for the remission of sin. It's because of His suffering that we were made righteous before God, as the prophet Isaiah tells us. He was pierced for our transgressions; He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. It is Jesus' death on the cross that was foretold about hundreds of years before he was even born. And it was Jesus' suffering death on the cross that paid the penalty that you and I owe. So Jesus' death on the cross is indispensable. It is absolutely indispensable to our faith. But not everyone believes that Jesus actually died on the cross. In fact, Muslims believe very firmly. They believe in the virgin birth of Christ. But you didn't know that. They absolutely believe in the virgin birth of Christ. They also believe that Jesus was perfect and he was sinless. They just believe he was just a prophet, though. And they denied that he died on the cross. In fact, they denied that he died at all. Okay? They believe that God took Jesus to heaven and someone else was crucified that looked like Jesus. Because if Jesus didn't die on the cross, then payment has not been made for your sins. Which is what the Muslims, Muslims believe. They believe that your sins cannot be paid for by the blood of Christ. Your sins must be atoned for by your complete and total obedience to Allah and the Prophet Muhammad. And, and, and then maybe, and then maybe, you know, if you're good enough, and, and God maybe then will have mercy on you. Maybe then you'll be saved. Now, there are others who refuse to believe that Jesus died on the cross. In fact, there are some who believe that Jesus' brother died on the cross. It's just like global conspiracy. And, and everyone mistook Jesus for him. And so when Jesus reappeared, you know, um, you know unharmed, and they thought, oh, well, he rose from the dead. That's, that's one explanation. While others believe that Jesus was crucified, but he didn't actually die on the cross. Okay? They believe that Jesus only looked dead, and when he was taken down, he was laid in the tomb, and the cool air of the tomb revived him, and somehow he moved a 2,000-pound stone out of the way, and he walked with holes in his ankles, um, and found his disciples, and convinced them in his state that somehow he had conquered the grave, and then he later died somewhere, and the body was never found. But the problem with all that is that, uh, is that not only do all the gospel records record the death of Christ, but there are many other ancient non-biblical sources as well that record the death of Christ. Historian Flavius Josephus, who worked for Emperor Vespasian, you know, the guy that actually like, uh, was responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem, who's very familiar with this area, okay? Josephus uh, wrote, at the time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. 
Okay? This is the words of a guy that's not a Christian. In fact, he was, he was a Jew working for the Roman government. And so he had no personal stake in the matter. And he confirms that Jesus, in fact, died on the cross. And then you have the Jewish Talmud, which, which was compiled between 70 and 200 AD. It notes that uh, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, which is the Jewish name for Jesus, was hanged. Okay? Which is another way or another expression for, for crucified because Jews just refused to say crucified or crucifixion. It was such a, an ugly, bitter thing to them. They wouldn't even say it. They would say that he was lifted up or he was hanged, but they wouldn't say he was crucified. Okay? It's the same expression. They validate the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And then you have uh, Mara ben Sirapon, and I'm not sure I got the name right, but uh, he was from Syria, writing between 70 and 280, and he notes, what advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? Again, this is an allusion to the charge brought against Jesus. When he was hung on the cross, there was a sign nailed above his head. It was his charge. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Okay? And so, it says, what advantage did the Jews again gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. And he's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem like 40 years after the death of Christ at the hands of Emperor Vespasian. See, the death of Christ on the cross, just like his virgin birth and his sinless life are historical facts, okay? And these are facts that we must absolutely believe because without his death on the cross... Payment has not been made for your sins. Now, the fourth historical fact about Jesus that, that really is the linchpin of our faith, okay? It is the central event in all of history that all of our hope rests on. This fourth historical fact, you know, that must we must believe is the fact that Jesus literally and physically rose from the dead. Jesus was completely physically dead, and then that same Jesus was risen fully back to physical life. And this is important because there are groups of people, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, who, who will claim that, 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 that they're the true church, but deny the bodily, physical resurrection of Christ. They claim that only his spirit was raised. But there's a problem. A raised spirit is really conspicuously lacking in any type of proof, okay? A raised spirit proves nothing. A raised spirit accomplishes nothing. But a raised physical Christ proves that Jesus is in fact what he claimed to be. And it, and it proves that Jesus has in fact conquered death and the grave. And it proves that Jesus is capable of doing what he has promised to do, which is to save our souls and give us new life. Which brings us, you know, to the great resurrection that is our hope, the great resurrection. That's why we love the song, I will rise, because our hope is one day we will all be risen. In fact, look what Paul says. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed to be raised from the dead, how can some say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Okay, he's talking about the great resurrection that happens at the end of all things. Okay, it's something that we look forward to. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ is Raised, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, and notice this, he says, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We have even been found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that had raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep 
in Christ have perished because they will never be raised. And then he goes on to say, if Christ, if in Christ we hope in this life only, we are to be people most pitied. Yeah. Where they should be the object of the most ridicule and pity. If Christ is not raised, we are wasting our time. But, he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of Christ is the linchpin of our faith. It is the historical central event that we must believe in. And understand, when I say historical event, I mean just that. It's not talking, I'm not talking about some religious thing, okay? I'm not talking about some philosophical thing. I am talking about uh, uh, not just a spiritual thing. I'm talking about a real event that happened in time and space. Jesus was physically, literally resurrected from the dead. And this is not simply a claim from the Bible, okay, uh, it's, it's actually the best explanation of all the historical evidence. In fact, uh, one of the world's leading New Testament scholars, his name is Gary Habermas, um, and, and he says about the historical evidence of Jesus Christ nowadays is actually overwhelming. In fact, he talks about a powerful argument for the resurrection called the minimal facts argument. And it's an argument that's based on not what the Bible says or what the church says or what the pastor says. Okay, he, It's an argument from what the bare minimum of facts of history actually has to say. And these facts that he talks about are not even disputed, okay? These, these facts are, 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 are all virtually by, by scholars, including atheists and agnostics and skeptics alike, are all agreed upon facts to be true. They're not disputed, okay? And so the challenge isn't the facts then. The challenge is simply the, the best explanation or the interpretation of the facts, okay? The question is what explanation best fits the evidence and all of the evidence. That's the challenge. Okay? So here's what the facts are. The facts are, number one, Jesus died by crucifixion, just as we, we talked about. And if anyone who's, who, who denies that he died on the cross just completely ignores the overwhelming preponderance of the historical facts. Jesus did not die on a torture stake, as, as some would claim. He was crucified, and he died. He did not swoon. He did not faint. He did not pass out, because the Romans were experts in killing people. Okay? They knew when someone was dead. They were good at it, and life was cheap in first century Jerusalem. And Jesus was, in fact, dead on the cross. This is a fact from history. Any reputable scholar, even the ones who are atheists, will still agree with that. Okay. The second fact is Jesus was buried. Okay. He was put in a tomb, and everyone knew where the tomb was because it was a public place. It was public knowledge. Okay. Number three, his death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope, believing that his life had ended. You see, the disciples had no understanding of Jesus reigning the entire world. Okay? They thought of him as the Jewish Messiah in, the, in, in Jewish terms, that he was going to be the ruler of Israel forever, and he would stay that way forever, okay? and that he would never die, and his death ruined their plans. They, his death ruined their understanding. They were not looking to create a new religion. And number four, the tomb that Jesus was laid in was empty a few days later. Now, this may surprise you, but the empty tomb isn't even debated anymore. No one even debates whether the tomb was empty or not because everyone knows it was empty. All historians point to the fact that it was empty. All the historical facts point to that. Only The only thing that, 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 that's discussed is how it got empty. Okay? And, and most skeptics, even themselves, will reject all 
of the naturalistic explanations for the tomb being empty, like the body being stolen. Even skeptical scholars go, yeah, that, that, that's really not a plausible explanation. All they can do is simply say, well, it's a mystery. That's, that's the only explanation that skeptical scholars can have for the empty tomb. Okay, and then beyond that, the disciples have experienced what they believe were the literal appearances of the risen Jesus. Now, I've got to pause here for just a quick second because you have to understand how important this is. All right? This is an indisputable fact. Jesus appeared to his followers. In fact, let me just take a, a quick moment and share some things with you maybe you've never heard before. Dale Allison. He's a skeptical New Testament scholar from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He says, I am sure that the risen Christ appeared to his followers. I just can't explain how. Okay. E.P. Sanders, skeptical professor of religion at Duke University, North Carolina, says, the earliest disciples saw the risen Jesus, but I can't account for how they saw him. Bart Erdman, okay, that's a guy's name that you probably want to remember. He is an atheist, not a skeptic. He's an atheist. Okay, he's an atheistic New Testament scholar at the University of North Carolina. He's probably the most most quoted, most cited atheist scholar by atheists. Okay, and he says, okay, and I quote: "Of course, Jesus appeared to his disciples. I can't argue with that." That is proven by history. This is the words. These are the words of, of atheists and skeptical scholars. And they agree that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he died. Okay? Now, they can't account for how. They just relegate it to, again, to a mystery. All right? But certainly, Jesus appearing to his disciples would explain fact number six. Fact number six is... The disciples were transformed from doubters who were afraid to identify themselves with Jesus because they were afraid they were going to be killed too, to somehow they became bold proclaimers of his death and resurrection out in public. What would cause that to happen? What would bring about such a radical transformation? The fact maybe that they saw Jesus alive after he was fully dead. Now let's just take stock real quick. The historical record, you know, indicates that Jesus had died. He was laid in a tomb whose location was very public, and they found his tomb empty. Jesus appeared to his disciples after that, again, not disputed, and, and their lives were clearly and radically changed by that experience. Now, that by itself is an incredible historical case for the resurrection of Jesus, but that is not all. Because beyond that, the message of Christ, you know, that he was raised from the dead, was the center of all preaching in the early church from the very beginning. It's the focus that was everything that was talked about. And the message was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem where Jesus died and was buried shortly before. And the church and this mes message flourished. In fact, the church born in Jerusalem, grew very rapidly. The church exploded with growth. And, and, and this was in the very town that all of this had taken place. The disciples didn't pack up and move to some faraway land telling some wild story where no one was there to, to know them or validate them. They preached in the streets of Jerusalem to the people who saw Jesus die. They preached in the streets of the city where that if there was a body to produce... They would have produced it to shut them up. They preached in the very city where all this happened and the church exploded. In fact, the very first day, kind of like the, when we, at Pentecost, when the church was actually launched, 2,000 people got saved in Jerusalem. Now, that's not all because James, the half-brother of Jesus, 
converted to, to, to faith when he saw what he believed was the resurrected Jesus. You see, he didn't follow Jesus until after Jesus was resurrected. Well, let me ask you a question. What would your brother have to do? Right? If he said to you, I'm the unique son of God, I'm God in the flesh, what would he have to do to prove that to you? Right? He'd probably have to come back from the dead, right? Yeah. Okay? And then you have Paul, okay? Paul was converted to faith after what he experienced. He believed the risen Jesus Christ. And think about that. This is, this is a guy who hated Christians from the very beginning. What would make a man like him who was sold out for his, his faith in Judaism and who was passionately pursuing Christians in order to have them arrested and killed, what would make them, what would make him accept, you know, in the thing, the very thing that he hated and the very thing that he was trying to destroy? It'd have to be something pretty incredible, right? Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ fits that to a T. Now understand, this is the accepted evidence, Okay? Okay. These are the accepted historical facts. No one disputes them. Okay. The consensus of scholars agree on these facts. And the very best conclusion based on these facts is that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead, just as the Bible says. Now, there are still people who will deny that Jesus rose from the dead. But they don't do so based on what the evidence says. Okay. They do so based on something else. They do so based on the preconceived idea that the supernatural events, like the resurrection, are just simply not possible, regardless of what the evidence says. They will just deny out of hand the virgin birth and the sinless life of Christ and the resurrection, not based on what the evidence says, but based on their own preconceived conclusions that the supernatural things are not possible. And so you're either open to follow where the evidence goes, no matter how crazy the conclusion may seem to you, or you're just simply going to reject what you think is impossible regardless of what the evidence actually says. You just choose to remain skeptical. And that's the choices that people make. And, and many people choose to do that. But the preponderance of evidence points to the fact that Jesus was historically dead and then he was historically raised back to life. And this evidence combined with the authority of scripture, because all the gospels testify to this and all the letters talk about the risen Christ, by that we are compelled based on all that evidence to draw a clear conclusion. And that conclusion is the resurrection of Christ is absolutely a real historical event. And because of that, the resurrection is the linchpin of our faith. It's the absolute essential doctrine of, that we must believe in in order to be saved. Because, as Paul said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now understand, when Paul says, believe in your heart, he doesn't say, well, you kind of have to believe it. Or you, know, you, just, you need to somewhat believe it. He says that you need to believe in your heart. And when he says your heart, he isn't talking about your feelings. Okay? He's talking about the center of who you are. It's the seat of your consciousness, the seat of your will and your emotions and your mind. You are to believe with everything that you are and everything that you have that the historical fact of Jesus Christ is absolutely real, that he is raised from the dead. You need to trust in that, flat, that fact. You need to place your hope in that fact. And if you truly believe that, believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, then you will be saved. You see, you're saved not by what you do. You're saved instead by what you believe. And what you believe and the doctrines that you hold, these things matter. And so you must 
believe in the historical Jesus who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross and was resurrected three days later. And you must believe those things. And guess what? Um, you can believe those things and not, not simply because the pastor says so. You can believe those things because the Bible, which is a historical document, God's own word to us says so. Not to mention that other historical documents and evidence say so. So it is not how you behave. It's what you believe that saves you. But in light of this, you believe in the Jesus who was raised from the dead, proving that he is all that he claimed to be and that he will do what he promised to do, which is he promised to save you. And it is that Jesus who you believe in and that you love and who, who loved you enough to die for you. It is that Jesus that said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies and love each other as I have loved you. Let your light shine before men. It's that Jesus that said that. It's because that Jesus, the one who died for you and the one you love so much, said those things that we should do them. It's because of that those things matter. Now, they don't matter because they save us, because they don't save you. It matters, though, because Jesus, the one who sacrificed so much to pay for your sin, to save you, said, do it. And so, it's a wonderful way to say, thank you, Lord. It's a wonderful way to say, I love you, Lord. It's wonderful to say, Lord, I fully believe in you, that I will do what you say to do which is to love everyone around you, everyone around you with a reckless abandon. Let me pray for you. Father, I just pray that as we continue to go through your word, you would just illuminate the truth and help us to, to receive it by faith. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to come to know you more and more each and every day and that through our faith in you, that we would just continue to grow and that we would, we would learn the things that you need for us to learn, that we would hold true and hold fast to things that, that are essential to our faith and we, would, we wouldn't get divided over the silly things that, that really just don't matter, that we wouldn't get divided over the things that, that, that cause Christians to not to have fellowship, we would, but we would hold fast to the very central things about who you are, the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross, and that he was physically raised from the dead, proving that he is all he claimed to be and that we would believe fully in, in who Jesus is, that, that he's fully God, fully man. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world. Thank you.